Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this Lord's Day. We're thankful for your word that you have given to us, and we pray that that as we dive into it and, and study it more, that our eyes would be open to, to new things, perhaps, and, or, or maybe just become more aware of, of, of old things and, and making connections, so that we, not just for our own knowledge, but so that we could grow and mature, becoming more Christ-like through your word. Uh, bless this time, enlighten us, help us to uh, just leave here uh, with more uh, love and, and um, appreciation for you and your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we are going to begin a series, and, and the title keeps getting longer, so it's a long title now. This is going to be, a, it, is, it is called All Things New. How does the Old Covenant relate to the New Covenant? An introduction to Acts. And the reason that I added the introduction to Acts is because as I was putting this study together, it's really difficult to talk about concepts like covenant without them being tied to, script, to the story of Scripture. And in fact, that's what I want to do with this. I want... The big picture of what we're doing is I, I don't want this to be a systematic study of covenants. What I want this to be is seeing the way that God establishes his covenants, looking at these big themes, these pictures that we can then take and apply to the rest of Scripture. And so what happens is Scripture often is taught in a linear fashion. What I want to do is, is, and this is very similar to what Gage did with Genesis, if you came to that Sunday, the last Sunday school. What I want to do is take the book of Acts, or at least the first couple of chapters, we'll see how far we get in four weeks, but I want to uh, take Acts as our foundation, and what I want to do is uh, teach the Bible or or look at the Bible, Um, what do you call those... uh, like in the medical where you begin with, with the foundation of a body, it's like the bone, the skeleton, and then you have the overlay, and it, it, put, it adds the, uh, the, the veins and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, um, the systems of the body, and then you get the muscles, and then you get the... So it, it's kind of this overlay. This is what, how I want us to understand Scripture. Not in a necessarily a linear fashion, but in building up and adding layers... And then once you get this whole picture, it helps you understand the skeletal system a little bit better. It helps you understand the musculatory system a little bit better. So that's how I want to approach this. So big picture. Understanding the flow of the Bible helps us to understand our place in the story. And so, yes, what the point I want to make here is that we have a part in, the, in God's Word even now. Now, the Bible has a beginning and an end. And so the Bible has a completion date. So we're not getting Scripture brought to us anymore, but we're still part of this story. The Bible story is our story. 
Now, I'm, I'm running with the assumption that the completion date of the Bible is before 70 A.D., and we'll get into that later at some point. But right now, this is the foundation. I'm, I'm going on the assumption our Bible is completed before 70 A.D. The Bible discusses things that will happen in our future. So from, from this point, the Bible does discuss things that will happen one day in the future for us. So the question for us is, the practical question is, how do we navigate the time in between the completion of God's Word and the second coming of Christ? We're in this intermediate stage, right? And different people have different views on how we function during this time period. And in fact, this is not the point of my lesson, but I think this is important, so I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on this. Dispensationalism, or futurism, has had a massive effect on the church, on Western culture, even people that would not consider themselves particularly religious or church-going, dispensationalism, futurism has affected our culture in such a way that I think it's worth thinking about as we move forward. We need to, we need to consider why this is and how we get outside of that, how we, how we navigate around this, because I think it has affected not only our culture, but it affects the church, it affects the way we read the Bible, it affects, it helped, it, it, what it has done is it caused us to miss things in the Bible because we're already programmed, whether we like it or not, we're programmed to read the Bible a certain way because of the effect of dispensationalism and futurism in our culture. Now, dispensationalism, like I said, I'm not going to get deep into it. But it is, it is an amazing thing to me that something that has had such an effect on our culture is really only, it, it began in the early 1800s. So we're not talking about something that is 2,000 you know, years old. It's, it's just a couple hundred years old. Uh, some of the names associated with it, Darby is the guy that's typically understood as the person that started it. Uh, D.L. Moody in America, D.L. Moody, uh, Schofield, these are guys that had big, influence on getting it, the influence that it has had in our culture. So <coughs> one of my prized possessions, in fact, is a Schofield Bible that belonged to my uh, grandmother. And on the one hand, it's, it's a, uh, I, I look at this thing and think, man, you know, it, it is, it's full of notes. I mean, she, and this is what you'll, you find a, a Schofield Bible from the early part of the century, it is going to be full of notes because People were digging into this thing. It had such a strong effect. And, and on the one hand, let's, uh, when I'm talking about dispensationalists, I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm not attacking it as a, as a non-Christian thing. What I am talking about it is in terms of an immature Christian system. And so I'm thankful for the fact that it got people into the Word, but what it did is it got people into the Word with a, with a particular worldview, with a particular mindset that we need to get out of if we're going to understand our Bibles better, and we're going to understand how we function in this world better. Um, so dispensationalism derives its name from the term oikonomia, which pops up in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, and it means to manage, regulate, administer, and plan the affairs of the household. And so the idea in dispensationalism is that God, through these dispensations, is 
like this dispensation worked for this period of time, and then God managed his household accordingly, and then he let that go by the wayside, and he went to the next dispensation, and he managed his household this way, and continually it, it progresses. And there's different types of, of dispensationalism. There's a classic dispensational, there's progressive dispensationalism. I'm just going to talk about it in general. But ultimately, while they, they do believe that covenants are important, dispensationalists don't use the covenants as the foundation of what they believe. The, the covenants are not how they break up their dispensations. And as many of you know, the, the thing that makes dispensationalism, uh, that, that brings it its, uh, what it is, what makes it distinctive, is its understanding of the Israel-Church relationship. And so I'm just going to read this uh, here. So what is central to dispensationalism is a specific understanding of the Israel-Church relationship, which in turn is organically related to their understanding of the biblical covenants. For all varieties of dispensationalism, Israel refers to an ethnic national people, and the church is never the transformed, restored, eschatological Israel in God's plan. So you get that. So, so Israel, the church is not Israel in this understanding. What happened in the new covenant doesn't, like that's not ultimate. There's still more to come because more stuff has to happen for Israel. The salvation of Gentiles is not part of the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel as a nation now realized in the church. Instead, God has promised national Israel first in the Abrahamic covenant and then reaffirmed by the prophets the possession of the promised land under Christ's rule as the Davidic king, which still awaits a future fulfillment in the premillennial return of Christ, the rapture, and in, in, in the consummation. The church, then, is distinctively new in God's purposes, and it is ontologically inherently different than Israel. The church and Israel are not the same thing. Although in our present dispensation, the church is comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles, the church only receives the spiritual blessings of the Spirit that were promised to Israel, not all of her national blessings. So, in the, so we're still waiting for the church to be blessed more, to, to reach another stage. In the future, Christ will rule over believing nations, including Israel, but not the church in her present form. The church as a present-day covenant people will not receive all of God's promises equally and fully in Christ or continue in its present form. Instead, believing Jews and Gentiles who now compose the church will join the redeemed of national Israel and the Gentile nations to live under Christ's rule according to their respective national identities and specific promises. So again, Christ is not reigning yet. He will one day. So this is very key to our understanding of Scripture. In this way, a clear distinction is maintained between Israel as a nation and the church as a people who at present, in an inaugurated form, illustrate what is still to come. So we are a picture of what will happen one day, but will not continue forever in its present form. All that to say, again, remember, I'm not, the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is simply that this has an impact on how we understand the Bible. And in our churches, if 
they are teaching this, and again, it's only 200 years old, but for 200 years, the majority of our evangelical churches have been teaching this in, in, to their people. It has had a massive effect as it's gone out, and what has happened is it colors the way that we understand God's Word. And it even has an effect, I would say, on Reformed theology, because what has happened is even if you take a covenantal view of the Bible, what has happened in many cases, and you can do this when you read systematic theologies sometimes, and, and there's a variety of them, some of these systematic theologies treat the covenants as if they are dispensations. And so one covenant is this thing, and then that covenant becomes something different and new, and then that covenant is done away with, and then the next covenant comes. And so what has happened is dispensationalism has influenced even covenant theology. And we are here at TRC, we are we are covenantal. So I want to begin our lesson with this understanding that we are covenantal, but we're not dispensational. And so that means that we have to qualify what it means to be covenantal, because it doesn't mean what a lot of people think it, it thinks it means. It, it's the same as Calvinism. I was just having this conversation with my daughter the, the other day. You know, Calvinism is one of these things where you have to qualify what it means now because it means different things to other people. I think C.S. Lewis brought this up one time and said that, that words change, that words become meaningless over, what is the word that he used? Do you remember? What's that? Gentleman. Gentleman doesn't mean anything anymore because now gentleman is simply something you tell, is somebody you like. So that person is a scholar and a gentleman. Gentleman, ladies and gentlemen, but gentleman used to mean something factual. A gentleman is somebody that owned land and, and was of a particular class of person, and you could be a liar. That's C.S. Lewis said, you could be a liar and a gentleman at the same time. But now gentleman has become a worthless word because we use it for whoever we deem appropriate that fits that title. Well, that's the same thing with Calvinism. It's the same thing with covenantalism. So we need to go back to the root of these words and understand them better. And I'm still, I apologize, I may drink quite a bit through this because my voice, I'm, I'm, I'm past the flu, so I'm not going to, nobody's going to catch the flu from me, but I'm still struggling to get my voice out here. So the objective of this class then is by looking closely at the events of Acts, the first chapters of Acts, we will hopefully get a better grasp on how God instituted the new covenant which in turn will help us understand how he instituted the Old Covenant and the different administrations of it. We'll also what the new, we'll understand what the New Testament church actually is in relation to God's people from the very beginning. So again, the, this, even in covenantal understanding, and especially in dispensational, the church is a new thing. It happened at Pentecost. It was this new thing instituted. Well, I'm going to actually talk about how, no, actually from the very beginning, Genesis 1, we have the institution of the church. It, this is not some new thing that takes shape every, you know, every administration, every covenant. And um, so, and then finally, understanding the flow of God's redemptive history for his people, thereby understanding our place in that history and understanding the Bible better. So if we understand what's going on and again, it's so broad, if we, so I'm going to narrow it. If we understand what's going on in Acts and in the New Testament in general, we will understand what's going on in the Bible better. And then 
as a result, we will understand what is going on in our time better, what our role is right now in the world. So foundationally, let's go back to the, let's just start at the beginning. What is a covenant? And what I'm about to do here, these are basic definitions. What I, I want to begin with these basic definitions, but I want to move on from there. Because again, I think, I think these definitions are important, but I don't think they really get at the heart ultimately of what covenants are. But I am going to begin with these definitions. What is a covenant? A covenant is a contractual agreement between two parties. It's as simple as that. And this definition satisfies our analytical, rational minds. And again, this plays a part in our systematic theologies. This is how we like to do theology. Everything nice and neat, linear. And, this, and, and so it, it, in, a, in a way, I'm not saying systematic theology is all bad. It does help us understand the Bible better. There is a place for systematic theology. But this is not how we are primarily to read and understand Scripture. Uh, what are characteristics of a covenant? Well, every covenant has a mediator. And that means it has a representative for a group of people. And you can think about this. We'll get into the different administrations, but keep that in mind, a mediator. And even in your minds now, you can probably start thinking about the different covenants and who the mediator was. Every covenant promise promises certain blessings for those who keep it. So each covenant comes with blessings for those who keep that covenant. And they are conditional. Each covenant's conditional. There are curses for those who break the covenant. Every covenant has a memorial sign attached to it. There is some, like, a, you know, you can think Noah. There's what? What was the sign with the Noahic covenant? Anybody? Hmm? Yeah, the rainbow. Yeah. So there are memorial signs connected with each covenant. And then finally, there is an expansion and this is something that, you know, it's different, depending on who you're reading, the language may be different, but they all understand that each covenant expands, it grows, so it's not done away with. And this is important, because I do think this is where dispensationalism sort of affects us, is we assume that each covenant ends and then begins at the next one. But that's not true. They, they expand, they grow. God is, God is working through these covenants, and each, each covenant administration takes on greater meaning as it goes. <clears throat> so let's talk about these different covenants. I'm sure you, you, know, you all know, you got the, Ad, the Adamic, or the Adam, the, well, I'll just Adam. I won't try to add X to the end of them. Uh, <clears throat> so there's the covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, Covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses, David, and then, of course, Jesus. Now, here's where I want to start getting us to think differently. Let's talk about the linguistics of what a covenant is. In the Hebrew, the word covenant is, is berith. And that word, so anytime you see covenant, that's the word you see. This is in the Old Testament. The root of that word, so it comes from the root, so berith comes from the root bara, which means to create. So a covenant, the word covenant comes from the word create. It is the exact same word. So create is the word in Genesis 1. 
in the beginning, God created. That's that word. That's what covenant. So when we even talk about covenants and we think about covenants in terms of Adam, Noah, Moses, Abraham, even there we're missing things if we think about it in these categories because from the very beginning, there's a covenant being established in creation when God creates the, creates the world. Um, the first use of the word covenant, the bereath, is in Genesis 6. And, and um, we're going to read that in a little bit. We'll come back to that. I'm just making that point now. But Genesis 6 is the beginning of the Noah story. In the Greek, the word for covenant is diatheke. And again, that's the word covenant, and it comes from the root diathemehe, if I'm saying that right, and it means to make. So again, create, to make. This is the same word for the word testament. So when we talk about a New Testament, it is a, that's the same word, covenant, testament. So this leads us into something we ought to think about. How do we divide the Bible? We have an Old Testament and we have a New Testament. But when we think about that word testament, we don't think about the word covenant. Testament has come to mean something else to us. And again, this is a result, it's a result of many things. I'm not just going to put all the blame on dispensationalism. Part of it's the blame is on people that made the Bible that way. And, and, and I say blame, it's not, it's a very functional way to use the Bible. I'm not, I'm not denigrating it. But what happens is because the Bible is created in this certain way where you have the Old Testament and we've been trained to think that things begin and end and begin and end, begin and end. And then we have this part in the middle where there was this 400 year gap between the end, you know, Malachi and now Matthew. And now we have the New Testament. Well, it causes us to think about the Bible in certain ways that aren't necessarily the best way to think about it. So, first of all, the New Testament is comprised of the Gospels. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are all in the Old Covenant until you get to the very, you know, the death of Christ and the resurrection. So we, got a, we have a context of old covenant here and so that is something that we have to think about because when we think new testament we're thinking of this new thing but the story of jesus takes place in this old covenant <clears throat> another thing to think about is there are many new testaments right if you think about the way the bible is divided up the first and, and there's different ways to do this but the you, you think of the pentateuch you could actually probably throw Joshua in there. That was a testament. That, that, those are a group of, group of books of the Bible that were put together at one time, and that's what the, church, that's what the people of God had for a period of time. That's, that was their word. That was the law. They had this. And then all of a sudden, another group of the Bible came along like this. You get Judges and Samuel and Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and in a, the Davidic period, I guess you would call it, you get another grouping of God's Word given to His people. That's a New Testament when you think about it. And then you have the prophetic period. You get books and, key, you know, and this is traced, you, you know, conservative scholars especially, you know, 
you can trace the timeline of these things. The, 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 so the times periods that we have for these books, you get Kings and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea. Um, and then finally, you get another period. You get a, you get a gap. Remember, they're in exile, so there's nothing being, you know, not much being written there. You have Ezekiel writing and Daniel. But then you have the books put together, and again, there's a difference between, so you have the writing, but then you have the putting together and then giving it to the people. You get the final grouping of Old Testament books. You get Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And then you have this 400-year gap. Malachi ends. 400 years, and then we start getting the um, letter, you know, the Gospels. And what happens is we don't, we don't tend to think about that 400-year period very much because, we, you know, we don't, it's, not, it's just not in the Bible. You, you have Malachi, post-exile, they've come back into Israel. They're already, Ezra and Nehemiah, you get the story of Israel coming back, and then all of a sudden in Malachi, it's like, y'all are already sinning again. Like, what is y'all's problem? Like, this is, your curses are coming upon you. But then there's this promise at the end of Malachi that one day things are going to turn around again. You know, you still haven't learned your lesson, but hope is coming. The fathers will be turned back to their sons. And so there is a promise of redemption at the end of Malachi. But in that in-between period, you have 400 years where, you know, the, the, in general, what we think of is Alexander the Great. You have the Greek rule and, and um, the Medes, Persians, and then the Greeks. And you have, um, so just real simple, I'll just kind of throw out a little bit I remember, but you have, um, over Israel, you have Antiochus Epiphanes, who was in charge of Israel at the time, and, and he, with, with the very enthusiastic help of the rulers and the, and, and the leaders of Israel, basically Hellenized or, or Greekized the, the um, Jewish faith. So the, um, they changed their names to Greek names, so you had, you know, the high priest's name was Jason, and, and <clears throat> but what happened was eventually there was... Um, there was a revolt. So you, you hear the story of the Maccabees and the Maccabees. What, so what happened was Antiochus Epiphanes made Jewish worship in the temple Ill illegal. And so there was this big series of battles and the Maccabees won. The Maccabees came out on top. And so if you read, if you ever read 1 Maccabees, and I don't necessarily recommend it, but it's, it's sort of this uh, glorified view of what happened. And the Maccabees are almost spoke, spoken of as this... Uh, as this prophet, godlike figure who God chose to come in and just conquer, and, and he's like this superhero. Well, if you read 2 Maccabees, it's actually more the actual story of what happened. And, and you know, God used them to, to bring worship back, but what happened is the Maccabees did not institute worship the way it was supposed to be. They brought, put themselves in charge. And so the high priest became an auction. Whoever had the most money could become high priest. So by the time we get to Jesus' time, the, the temple is utterly corrupt because it's whoever has the most money or whoever has the most power, that's who's in control. It's not the Zadokite priest who was supposed to, you know, that God deemed this is who the high priest is. It's whoever's got the money, that's who's in charge. And so Jesus is coming on the scene in the middle of 
what you could arguably say is the most corrupt time of Israel. And that's all I'll say about that. But that, that period of time, we have to, it is good to have that context because it wasn't like it was just 400 years of nothing and then all of a sudden Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come on the scene. Uh, there was context there. Um, one more thing I wanted to say about the Testaments as we move forward is that, um, well, so yeah, so I wanted to talk about, when we, when we think about the New Testament, think about the different types of styles that we have in the New Testament. We have letters, we have poetry even, we have you know, you look at Revelation and how different Revelation is from John, and it's the same author. Well, if you go back to these different groupings of books in the Old Testament and you get these groups, they all contain the same thing. That the, New New, the New Testament is not this new, different thing full of letters from Paul. It's very much like every other grouping that you get. The Pentateuch is full of the same things that the New Testament is full of. It's got pictures of signs and symbols and, and poetry and narrative. Same thing for, the, for each section. You can look at these sections like the prophet. The prophets are very much like Paul's letters. Um, they're writing to people and telling them to get their act together. So um, we shouldn't think about the Old Testament as this other thing. The Old Testament and the New Testament are very, very, very similar. Um, let's see. So, rather, so again, I don't want to. I don't want to say New Testament, Old Testament is necessarily a bad thing, but I do want us to think differently about it. And really, as I said, testament means covenant. Really, what we ought to be think, the way we ought to be thinking about the Bible is Old Covenant and New Covenant, and this is important. And here's where I will. Uh, if you have the paper, you can look at it. But I'm just going to draw it real quick. I think it's helpful. I like this chart quite a bit. I've used it a few times. So here's how we look at the flow of the Bible. And you definitely want to refer to your paper because it's going to be a lot nicer looking than what I'm about to do on here. So here's the flow of biblical history here. Here we have the Gospels. So you have your paper, but essentially Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John right here. Um, but, but really, what I want to just point out is this. You have the cross here. Everything back here is the old age or the old covenant. And this is what is important, I think. At, at this point of the cross what you have is this line going down to the new age. And what is this age right here? What is the date here? 70 A.D. What is, what is important about 70 A.D.? Destruction of the temple. This, the Bible is full of this date. Every, I mean, there's so much information Jesus is constantly referring to this date. Paul is constantly referring to this. Peter is constantly referring to this. And so right off the bat, if you can't see that and see how important that is, 
and I'm saying y'all, but I'm just saying in general, when we're talking about dispensationalism, if, if this date doesn't become important to how you understand the New Testament and even the Old Testament, you're going to miss a lot of what's going on. And so this, but here, here, let me explain what is actually going on here, though. When Jesus, and I say the cross, but really it's, it's Jesus' life, the incarnation, what we just celebrated, Jesus' birth to his death is really the institution of this new covenant. Jesus has come, remember he tells his disciples, this, you know, at the Lord's Supper, this is the cup of the new covenant shed in my blood. He's instituting the new covenant, but that doesn't happen without the 30 years before, the 33 years before. So Jesus' life is the institution of this new covenant. But the cross is really where it's a good point. And what you have here is 40 years, and that's key. I mean, a lot of you know this, but 40 years, this is very important. There's a number that comes up over and over in Scripture. You have a 40-year period here. The, the Old Covenant didn't just die here. The New Testament is the story of the church trying to navigate the ending of the Old Covenant at the destruction and the beginning of the New Covenant, which is getting broader and wider and moving. And get, you know, Once you get up here, the Old Covenant's done. 70 AD, the Old Covenant is gone. The New Covenant, though, that began over here has now reached this apex. It's now moving out into the world. What we are part of post-70 AD, our context, is a context where the Old Covenant has now ended, and we live in this promised land. Jesus is king. He became king here. But this period of time, if we don't get that the Old Covenant is fading away at the same time that the New Covenant is growing, you miss so much of what's going on in the book of Acts, in the letters to Paul, from Paul, in the letters of Peter, and even in you know, things like the Olivet Discourse and the things that Jesus taught. <coughs> so you can, you can refer to your chart. Um, I'll probably keep bringing it back because I think it, I, I, keep, I do want to refer to it. If you have yours, remember to bring it back next week. Um, I may add to it as, as we go, but I think it's a good chart to have handy because it's a good reminder because I think, I think that point right there is extremely important to understanding God's Word and especially understanding the New Testament because here's the thing. We are not a New Testament church. <laughs> you know, but that's what, how many churches talk about being a New Testament church? We are the church. And the problem with being a New Testament church is what happens is you miss, you think, well, the church has to look a certain way of the church that we read about in Acts, for instance. Well, that's not necessarily true because what's going on in Acts is completely different than what we're doing today. The church in Acts is acting out certain things, certain signs, certain typologies that we don't do today necessarily. The church is going through this transition where all kinds of different weird things are happening that do not apply to us today. Now, we do take principles. It's the same thing as like, what would Jesus do? You know, you were the, the armband. Well, you don't do a lot of things that Jesus do because Jesus is the only one that did them. But it's not a bad 
it's not a bad idea to think, what would Jesus do? You want to, you want to mimic Jesus in your life, but we can take that too far, and then we think, well, look, Jesus healed somebody, so we, this is what we ought to be doing. We ought to be healing people, and you miss the point that Jesus is not just healing people because he's the, you know, he loves to heal people. He does, but Jesus is restoring the church. Jesus is healing people, blind people, people with shortened, or people with different ailments that, in Leviticus, keep you from being clean. Does the things that Jesus is healing are things that kept people out of worship. God is going, you know, he's bypassing the leaders of Israel, and he's going to the prostitutes and the, and the broken people, and he's restoring their sight so that they can be the new priests. They're the new worship. They're the they're worshipers. They can, the lady with the issue of blood it wasn't just that she had an issue of blood for, that, for as long as she did. It's that she could not worship. She could not enter into worship. And when Jesus heals her, when she touches him, that's what's going on there. She can now enter into the temple. She can now go worship. When um, Jesus goes to heal, you know, the, the, the whole thing going on there with Jesus healing dead bodies, you know, raising people to life, and remember, he tells the disciples, stay outside, because the disciples could not go into the room. They would, it would make them unclean. You go into a room with a dead body, you take on the elements of that dead body. It passes on. Jesus is the first one to come and walk into a room and then say, you're alive. I pass on life. Nobody else could do that until we get to Acts, and all of a sudden, the disciples are doing these things. And the church during this time are doing these things, and we don't do that today. We don't walk up to dead people and, you know, and raise them from the dead. So we have to get that in our mind because that's what we see nowadays. When people say, well, we're a New Testament church, well, they start, like, what they do is they pick and choose the elements of what a New Testament church is, and then they say, well, look, I, I read this in the New Testament, so this is what we must do. And, and you miss, not only do you misinterpret and start doing things that maybe you shouldn't be doing, but you also miss things that you should be doing because they're not as obvious. They're not proof, you know, we proof text the, new, the, the Bible, and the Bible is not meant to be proof text. The Bible is this big story. Like I said, it's this, it, it has these overlays, and as you're studying the Bible, you start to get pictures. And that's a, Going back to our objective, that's what I want to do with Acts. I want us to see what's going on by looking at the book of Acts and seeing that it's not just, it's, we, we don't want to proof text the New Testament. We want to see these big pictures unfold before us. Um, I got 10 minutes left, so what I want to do, um, I would have loved to have other people read. I just don't think it, it won't pick up on here. So I'm going to read. And hopefully I'll still have enough voice to lead worship later. But So what I want to do is, is read out some scripture references to the coming of the new covenant, passing away of the old covenant. Because again, this is very vital to our understanding of God's word. And different words are used that you may not necessarily pick up on when you're reading your Bible because it doesn't always say the same thing. There's all kinds of different terms used for what is happening here. So I want to run through a few of them. The first one, Matthew 19, 28. And if you want to write these down and look at them later, I'll, I'll give the scripture passages and you can write them down. But I'm just going to read these real quick. Matthew 19, 28. And um, 
Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the, so in the ESV it says the new world, but if your ESV probably has a little note by it, that word is not, you know, they're translating it because, ooh, there's, a, uh, there's one of those uh, words that makes people fight. The regeneration is the word. Uh, truly I say to you, in the, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, have followed me, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus uses the word regeneration to refer to what is coming, this new world, this new covenant. Matthew 17, 11. Matthew 17, 11. He answered, Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. So restoration, that word restore is used to refer to this. Hebrews 9, 10. Hebrews 9, 10. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of, and here's a word we like, reformation. So this word reformation is used to refer to this period. Acts 3, 19. The word there used for this, it'd probably be bad, I'll just say the words. as they're, You write them down, you can go back and look at them. Acts 3, 19, refreshing is the word used. Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. The word used there, Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, the fullness of time. Think about that word, that, the understanding, the fullness. It's not a period of time that's over in the new one. It is the fullness of time. Revelation 21, 5. All things new is how it's referred to. All things new. That's the, where I got the title of this lesson. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It's a new creation, new creation. Again, remember, that word covenant is the word create. There's a bunch of, there's a bunch of verses that use the word la the latter days. Acts 2.17, Acts 2.17, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, James 5, 1 through 3, and 1 John 2.18 refer to this period of time as the latter days. The last days. 1 Peter 1.20 and 2 Peter 2.20. And then finally, Hebrews 9.26 refers to the end of the age. So again, these are all different terms used for essentially the same thing that we're talking about here. The Bible speaks of this time period in all these different, different ways. <clears throat> now, what are, let, let me end with this. So I've got five minutes left. Um, maybe I'll throw out a few questions, but again, I don't think they'll pick up very well. I'll try to repeat if, what, whatever you say, but what I want to do now is just spend a couple of minutes, give some Give some correlating, so, distinct, so I, the way I put it down was correlating distinctives of the Old Covenant and New Covenant. But what, really what I'm, what I'm talking about are, what are some things that are unique to the Old Covenant that are related but different in the New Covenant? And the key here is what I want you to think about too is 
again, remember, like these things are melded here in the middle. The old is dying, the new is, is, is growing. But what are some things that, like, like let me give you an example. Um, in the Old Covenant, there was a central sanctuary. There was the temple, right? Or the, um, the, you know, the sanctuary, the central sanctuary. In the New Covenant, we have decentralized sanctuaries. You know, where is the church? Like, we're worshiping right now. We can do this in the New Covenant, or in, in a few minutes we'll be worshiping. What are some other things that are related but different, Old Covenant than New Covenant? Can you think of any? Yeah. Yeah, good. You just went with the most, you just. <laughs> Any, anything? Oh, I'm sorry, I, should, I was, said I was going to repeat. So Jeremy said uh, circumcision in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant baptism. Sorry, thank you. Anything else? Is there anything else going Old Covenant to New Covenant? And so in the, old, in the Old Covenant, we have animal sacrifices. In the New Covenant, they are done away with. Yeah, I put that here. In the Old Covenant, and, and this is related. I have two here. I have animal sacrifices. And in the New Covenant, we have human sacrifices, right? And I put human in quotation marks. But that's what we have. We have human sacrifice. You have Christ's sacrifice on the cross, but really... And this is actually what I'm preaching on next week, but in Romans 12, you have present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So we are presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. But also, to Katie's point, is you have bloody rites in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, you have unbloody rites. Anything else? Maybe one more. Since we're, what's that? Okay, yeah, the priesthood. Um, let me see if I have here in my list... Uh, so, so I don't have that, so unpack that. So what's the, di- like, explain what you're in the Old Covenant and the difference in the New Covenant. Yeah. Yeah, so what he's saying is in the Old Covenant, you have the Levites as the priests. They, they, are, they are dedicated, they are set apart to be priests. In the New Covenant, we have the priesthood of all believers. So again, this, this priestly theme going back from the Old Covenant and New Covenant. Let me just rattle off the rest that I have here. In the Old Covenant, old heavens and earth, new heavens and earth. Um, I did sanctuary, sacrifice. Old Covenant, partial revelation. And this is something we just talked about. In the New Covenant, you have complete revelation. You have God's Word now that's complete. In the Old Covenant, seventh day, seventh day Sabbath. In the New Covenant, eighth day. So we move into this eighth day time. Um, if you remember early on when I first came here, I did that little, you know, the, uh, the, the Old Covenant is like the, um, the uh, what is that called? I'm not a musician. Scale, the octave on the piano. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti. That's seven. Jesus is like that final no, like he completes it. He's the eighth note. He's the eighth day. Old covenant, Jew-Gentile divide. New covenant, no distinction. Old covenant, the memorial name is Yahweh. In the new covenant, it's Jesus. In the old covenant, you have the failure of the Jews over and over again. I just talked about that. Even in Malachi, you get the whole story, and they finally come back from exile, and Malachi is 
you've done it again. Like you all are, you're all cheating, you're stealing, you're committing adultery against you know, the God who saved you. But in the new covenant, we have the faithful Jew. We have Christ and we have the church that follows is in Christ. And then finally, this is something perhaps you've picked up on that has come up in time. You, in the old covenant, you have sheep. And you have land animals, and you have sacrificial animals, sheep, sheep everywhere. David's a shepherd. In the new covenant, you have fish. You have this focus on fish. And fishermen are called to be disciples. And Jesus is, a, you know, makes them fishers of men. So, and Jesus eats fish with his disciples. So you have these themes that, that are related but separate. So um, that is my keep my uh, timer and I hit it right exactly where I wanted to which is a first for me because I am always running late so we hit it I'll close us in prayer and we will uh, you can go pick up your kids father in heaven we give thanks for your word ask that you would uh, be with us now as we prepare our hearts for worship in Jesus name thanks for listening to find out more check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com That's Trinity Reformed, K-I-R-K dot com.